So we're starting something a bit new. We're starting this Sunday with having a sermon guide in, uh, well, it's not in the bulletin today, but typically it will be a sermon guide available for you to be able to take notes and to kind of follow along with the sermon. This is going to be important for some new things that are coming up around the corner. So with that said, if you did not receive a sermon guide and you would like to receive a sermon guide, if you would just hold your hand up while I'm talking, uh, we have some folks that are going to come and find you and make sure that, that you get one. You ever wonder what difference you can make? I know, I know for me, when I look around our community and I look around uh, the, the, the folks that I see and the places that I go and the people that I interact with, very often I find myself called to action. I find myself called to, to do something, to help in some way. But I look around and seeing the sheer volume of needs and seeing the sheer, the sheer uh, dire uh, necessity of the need, I am overwhelmed, disoriented, and even paralyzed so much so that I feel like I ultimately do nothing at all. I, I look around and I see, uh, I see moms and they're trying to live up to all the expectations that the world sets for them and all the definitions that the world sets for them. And they live in perpetual guilt. And on top of their perpetual guilt for not measuring up as a mom, they feel so lonely that they believe that if they disappeared off the face of the earth, nobody would miss them until supper didn't show up. I see teenagers and college students and they're trying to get their grip in the world, and they, they wonder why what they're placed here for. They wonder what all of this is really about. And many of them, even today, perhaps even some of them in this room at this very moment are contemplating whether or not they should continue to live. You can go to our elementary school, and you can walk the halls of our elementary school, and you can come across children who have not been hugged, who have not been loved, who no one is excited to see them in the afternoon and no one is excited to care for them and nurture them and nourish them. And they walk around the halls of the school and they act out and they, or they, they keep to themselves and it's easy for them to live days at a time thinking that they don't have the affection or the love of another single person in all of the earth. See men, dads, husbands, trying to discover some sense of purpose and the realization of some sense of ambition. And so they, they work and they work and they work. Or the work's not going right or their job isn't what they want it to be. And so they devote themselves to their hobbies and they, they exist in a prolonged adolescence, withdrawing from the family down into their man cave so that they can play at games while their family continues on in life. And the real truth of the matter is, is that they're crying out, I don't know what I'm here for. And so I, I see the need around us. I see it regardless of youth up to old age. And for me, I look at it and I know I'm supposed to do something. I'm supposed to be a person that has answers. I'm supposed to be a person that has solutions. I'm supposed to be able to care for the young and for the old. I'm supposed to be able to care for the disenfranchised and the discouraged. I'm supposed to be able to help those that are without purpose. But I see the volume of the need and I see how dire the need is. And for me, it's disorienting and it's paralyzing. Because you kind of wonder, right? With needs so great and needs so many, 
what can I really do? How can I actually help? What, what, what difference can I actually make for, in someone else's life? And what we do as we see that is we end up doing nothing at all. This morning, what we're going to see is we're going to see in the life of the very first deacon, in the life of the church, and what we're going to see from his life is what difference one man can make to overwhelm and to begin an unstoppable movement by the power of God and filled with the Spirit of God that can carry forward. What we're going to see is him answer the call that's right in front of him, and by answering the call right in front of him, the Lord uses him to shake up his church and to mobilize his church and to meet needs that are still being met today. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. When you get to Acts chapter 6, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Let's start together in verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Skip down to chapter 7, verse 54 with me, please. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. I understand the first part of Acts chapter 6 to be the calling of the first deacon. And if if not a literal deacon at that time, uh, the prototype of what it meant to be a deacon. There was a, a controversy, a conflict that had broken out among the church. You have this fledgling new church that the Lord has brought together and has saved. And the Holy Spirit has descended upon them on the day of Pentecost. And there's these great wonders and awe. They're all in awe of the Lord. And it says that they have everything in common. And they're giving to each as they have need. And they're meeting the needs of one another. So it's this, this profoundly beautiful picture of the Lord beginning His body, beginning His church. But there's a con- controversy and a conflict that breaks out among the church even at that stage. 
that there's two groups of, of widows within the life of the church. You have the Hellenistic Jews and you have the Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were those who spoke Greek and were more integrated into the Greek culture. And you have the Hebraic Jews that spoke Hebrew and were more conservative and, and, and more, more conservative followers of Judaism. And so there's, there's a conflict that breaks out in the church that they believe that the widows, the, the Hebraic widows, are being cared for more faithfully and more generously than the Hellenistic widows. And so the apostles come together and they decide what they must do to remedy this controversy, remedy this conflict, is they must have the church raise up from among their ranks seven men, seven men that can begin to, to care for all of the widows and make sure all of the widows are taken care of so that the apostles can continue to devote themselves to the work of praying and preaching God's word. And so they, they do just that. And they have three, qual, uh, three qualifications that the apostles give to them so that they, they can raise up any man that they want to from their flock, but they give them three qualifications to follow. That they must be a man of good repute, that he, that he must have a good reputation, a reputation of respectability, a reputation of virtue, a reputation of integrity. They must be full of the Holy Spirit, and they must be full of wisdom. They must be, have a, they must be men of good repute, they must be full of the Spirit, and they must be full of wisdom. And so what begins to stand out immediately about Stephen Stephen is the, the first of the seven that is mentioned. He's the one that we are given the greatest amount of information about. He is the, the deacon in the New Testament that gives us, I believe, the greatest insight into the nature of the office as it is to function now in the New Testament church. And so what we begin to see about Stephen and the reason that, that Stephen is selected as being one of these men is that Stephen is first and foremost a man who is full of God a man who is full of God. You can see this, there's an emphasis on the, the fullness of Stephen, isn't there? Four different times it's mentioned. In verse three, it says that Stephen is full of the spirit and of wisdom. In verse five, that he is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, that he is full of grace and power. In verse 55, at the end there, it says that he is full of the Holy Spirit once again. That what stood out to the church about Stephen was not that Stephen was, was successful in the community. What stood out about Stephen was not that, that Stephen was a man of, of political clout. What stood out about Stephen was not that he was financially endowed and prosperous. What stood out to his church about Stephen was that Stephen was a man full of God says that he's full of the Holy Spirit at three different occasions. It mentions faith, it mentions wisdom, but at three different occasions, out of the four occasions that his fullness is mentioned, it mentions that he is full of the Holy Spirit. That is that the very presence of God and the character of God and the power of God and the courage of God and the self-control of God, the passion for hunger and thirst, for, uh, the passion for hungering and thirsting for righteousness of God, all of that defined Stephen's character and defined Stephen's virtue so that when people in his church saw him and they saw his faith and they saw his faithfulness and they saw his service, what they recognized first and foremost was not what he was accomplishing, not what he was doing, not how he was succeeding, but that God was in him, that God was in him, that there was an apparent presence of God to his church in the life of Stephen. 
It was apparent to the church that when the issue among the widows had broken out, that Stephen was a man that would be willing and joyful and able to care for the widows. It was apparent to the life of the church that as issues arose in the church, that he would have the wisdom that he would need to take care of them and that he would have the courage and the guts to face them himself. It was apparent to his church that he was the kind of man that could set the pace for what it meant to follow after Jesus in the cross. Jim Elliot was a man who was full of God. Jim Elliot was a missionary to Ecuador to reach one of the indigenous groups there, a group that had no contact with the gospel, no contact with the scriptures, no, no, no ability to hear from a single missionary. They were known to be a group that was hostile to outsiders, a group that, that didn't take kindly to having intruders among them and intruders in their territory and in, and in uh, their culture. But, but Elliot was determined nonetheless to go and to reach them with the gospel, and it cost him his life. He laid down his life, and a short time after that, you can imagine that all among the global church, they were hailing Elliot as a hero of Christendom, a, a hero of the faith. His widow Elizabeth, she wrote these words in response to calls of Elliot being a hero. She said, Jim's aim was to know God. His course, obedience. The only course that could lead to fulfillment of his aim. His end was what some would call an extraordinary death, although in facing death, he had quietly pointed out that many have died because of obedience to God. He and the other men with, with whom he died were held as heroes and martyrs. I do not approve, nor would they have approved. It is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for Christ after all so great is not the second logical conclusion of the first. Furthermore, to live for God is to die daily, as the Apostle Paul put it. It is to lose everything, that we may gain Christ. It is in thus laying down our lives that we find Him. As we look at Stephen's life, we are looking at the very first Christian martyr. We see a man who is full of God. We see a man who is full of courage. We see a man who is full of faith and wisdom. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need in our church family. That's what Iron City Baptist Church needs. That's what White Plains and Golden Springs and Cleburne County needs, is they need some men who are full of God. We need some women who are full of God. We need some teenagers that will reject the way of their classmates and reject the way of their teammates and be men and women who are full of God. We have a choice that's before every one of us. We can coast through life doing what's normal. We can coast through the life making it our aim to have normal kids and a normal job and normal family and a normal marriage and a normal house with a normal savings account. Or we can reject our society's definition of normal and take hold of the cross and be filled with the Spirit and press on for Christ. We can live our lives seeking out the most convenience that we are able to obtain and the greatest leisure that we can possibly fit in. We can live our lives seeing how quickly we can get to the couch saying, oh God, won't you make my life comfortable? Or we can reject that life of comfort and reject the pursuit of the couch and instead pursue the cross and say, oh Lord, not my will, but your will be done. 
brothers and sisters, the spirit that availed himself to Stephen is the very same spirit that avails himself to you. The spirit that filled him with faith, the spirit that filled him with the speech and authority, the the spirit that filled him with self-control and self-discipline, the spirit that filled him with courage and guts and strength, the spirit that was apparent in Stephen to his church that allowed him to perform many wonders and miracles, that spirit avails himself to you so that now you have access to a courage that is beyond you. You have access to a strength that is beyond you. The question becomes, question becomes, will you take him up on it? Will you take him up on it? Will you grieve the Spirit and, 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 and quench the Spirit in your life by pursuing what is normal and pursuing what is ordinary? Or will you seek to be full of God that the Spirit might accomplish His work through you? Jonathan and Chris, what our church needs from you more than anything else is they need to know that our deacons are men who seek after God. They need to know that our deacons are men who relentlessly pursue God and His kingdom, who are full of God and His Spirit and faith and wisdom. We don't need you to be creative. We don't need you to have the the greatest ideas. We don't need you to prosper in life. We need you to be men who are full of God like this very first deacon. What we find next in the life of Stephen is that Stephen was a man who faced great opposition. Stephen was a man who faced and served in the face of great opposition. We see that Stephen was not going to prosper in his earthly life. He wasn't. Things were not going to go well. Like like Stephen wasn't going to work kind of hard, stash some money away, and then coast from his 60s through his 80s. Stephen wasn't going to live a comfortable life in which he was recognized and appreciated among his comrades. Stephen wasn't going to live a life that would add up and make sense in the American way. No, Stephen was going to live his life with enemies setting themselves against him. Stephen was going to live his life walking down a painful and costly path. Stephen was going to live his life and he was never going to get to his retirement years. Just think about the sheer advantages his opposition have against him. First of all, we see that that the opponents of Stephen outranked him. They were the elders in the synagogue. They were those that had social standing. They were those that had the respect of the people in the community. Then they take him before the Sanhedrin. This would be like you and I having a conflict with somebody in our community and being brought before Congress. And here's Stephen, an ordinary, uneducated, common man. Not only did they outrank him, but they outnumbered him. You just look at, first of all, it starts in a synagogue amongst a a group of scribes and a group of elders. Then they bring him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin alone had 71 men that were serving on it, all of whom were highly regarded and had the utmost authority and political clout. They held in in their very hand Stephen's own life and well-being. So he's, so he's outranked and he's outnumbered. And then you factor into all of that that they were ethically unhindered. You know, living in a broken world, ethics can short-circuit your life, can't they? Living in a broken and sinful world, ethics, living ethically can short-circuit your ambition, can it? 
you have Stephen and he's here and he wants to honor God and he wants to please God. But then you have, then you have all of these leaders, all of these men who are revered as men of God. And it says that they are instigating the crowd. It says that they are raising up false witnesses against Stephen. That they are doing things that are corrupt. They are doing things that are, that are ethically unapprovable. They are, they are saying that they are trying to uphold the law all while living in utter violation of the law themselves. What chance did Stephen have? Opposition will always arise against God's servants. If you try to do something for God, you try to devote your life to God, you try to devote your family to God, you try to devote your fit your marriage to God. You try to offer your children to God and let me tell you what will happen. You will face the greatest opposition of your life. You will face an opposition that doesn't make sense. You will face an opposition that will overwhelm you. You will face an opposition that seems to be virtually impossible. That when you go on the offensive for Christ, when you decide that you aren't just going to sit idly by and let life happen to you, but instead you're going to go on the offensive for Christ, what you can be assured is that when you seek to take down the gates of hell, the gates of hell are going to fight back. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But in there, there is a twofold promise. The first promise is, is that you are going to, they are going to attempt to prevail. They're going to attempt to take down the gospel threats that rise up against them. They're going to attempt to take down those who seek to advance the kingdom of God and the causes of Christ. They're going to attempt to crush the morale of the church and bring division in the church. They're going to attempt to crush the spirit of the brothers who seek to honor, uh, serve faithfully. They're going to seek to take deacons that start off on a, on a path of idealism and, and passion. And they're going to seek to rob you of your idealism and fill you instead with skepticism and cynicism. And they're going to rob you of your passion, attempt to rob you of your passion and replace it with just frustration and exhaustion and burnout. And brothers and sisters, it is true for every one of you. You try to honor God in your life. You try to bring offense to the gates of hell and the gates of hell are not going to be content to sit there and let you do it. They are going to attempt to stop you. But there is a second part to that promise. There is a second aspect to the promise that we get in Matthew 16. And it is that though the gates of hell will fight back, they will not win. They will not win. Remember in Matthew 16, what Jesus is talking about, it's in the context of his own suffering. And then in the context of him calling his own disciples to take up their crosses and to follow him, to to embrace suffering themselves. And he tells them, you are going to suffer for following after me. You're going to suffer for loving me. You're going to suffer for attempting to expand my kingdom. But the gates of hell will not prevail against you. You cannot step to the front lines of the spiritual war and not expect to have bullets whizzing past your head and shrapnel hitting you from all sides. See, what's apparent in the opponents of Stephen, his first deacon, is that his opponents were afraid of him. Imagine being them, all right? You've had trouble with this this guy starting this new movement, this this Johnny-come-lately miracle worker named Jesus that had no formal education, that kind of bursts onto the scene all of a sudden that virtually no one outside of his 
close, tight-knit community had ever heard of, but he speaks with an authority that is otherworldly. And, and he speaks eloquently, and he speaks, speaks passionately. And people hear him talking, this, this Johnny-come-lately, this guy with no pedigree and no heritage, and they hear him speak, and they're drawn to him, and they begin to call him a, a prophet. Not only does he speak with great authority, but he performs miracles everywhere that he goes. And he, all the sick and communities are brought to him. And, and the sick and entire communities are sent away from Jesus, made well. Lame people walking, blind people seeing, deaf people hearing. And it completely disrupts the religious establishment. Now finally, they, they eradicate their problem. They, they cut the head off the snake. And they believe that by taking Jesus down and nailing Jesus to the cross, that all of this movement is going to die away. That now pretty much they just have to manage the news story, have a successful PR campaign, bring things back under control. But what does it say about Stephen? It says that Stephen is performing many miracles and many wonders. That, that is, that Stephen is doing the very things that Jesus did. It says that when the elders stood up against him in the synagogue, the educated men, the men that had sat under the teaching of the law for their entire lives, they, they sit and they begin to dispute what Stephen is saying. That Stephen is preaching the gospel and the truth about Christ. And here he is, a common, uneducated man. And these, these educated men, these scholars, begin to dispute Stephen. And what does it say? It says that they could not dispute him. They could not, they could not explain away what he was saying. They had no ability to stand up against Stephen. That is, that he was speaking with an authority. He was speaking with a power that was otherworldly. He was speaking with a power and with a courage and with a clarity and with a logic that, that even the most educated men would hear and they would be astonished. So he's performing the miracles. He's speaking with the authority. And what becomes apparent even to pagan men, even to wicked men, is that this man was like Christ. See, they thought they had ended the movement. They thought they had Jesus and all of his movement contained. But then they realized that men like Jesus were rising up everywhere. They, they realized that men that had Jesus' authority and Jesus' guts and Jesus' logic and Jesus' brilliance and Jesus' power, that they began to pop up everywhere. And they would put their hand over this leak and a, and, a, and a fountain would shoot up over here and they would try to put their foot on that hole and another one would pop up over here that they could not contain it. So what they see in Stephen is something that scares them. It says at the, at the, at the end of chapter 6 that his face shone like that of an angel. It, it brings back into our mind in the Exodus when, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he comes down and his face is illuminated and glowing because of his interaction with God and the, the presence of God and, and having been so near to God up on the mountain. And it says that the people are frightened by Moses and he has to wear a veil over his face so that the people can be around him and talk to him. Throughout the scriptures, whenever we see an angel, what does the angel always have to say to the people? Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And here is Stephen, standing in the midst of unbelieving men, standing in the midst of men that want to bring him destruction, and they see his face glowing. Can you imagine the shiver that went down their spine? See, 
it would be easy for us to see Stephen's persecution and Stephen's oppression, Stephen's persecution as oppression from God. It would be easy for us to see the difficulty and his, his inability to, to prosper in life as being a forsaking of God. But his persecution, his opposition was not oppression, it was opportunity. It was opportunity. The opposition that came into Stephen's life as Stephen sought to serve the kingdom and serve the church, the opposition that came into his life was an opportunity to live out of the power and out of the wisdom and out of the goodness of the Holy Spirit that was in him. It was an opportunity for the Spirit to make make manifest in the life of spirit his own fruit so that the world could see that Stephen wasn't living by a courage that was in him, but a courage that was greater than him. So that, that, that Stephen wasn't speaking with, a, with an intelligence and a brilliance that was in him, but one that was greater than him. So that Stephen wasn't performing works and miracles that he was capable of, but works that were greater than him. That, that Stephen was not operating according to the power of a natural man. No, Stephen was under the influence of a supernatural spirit dwelling within him and coming out of him in all of the ways that he was coming against the gates of hell. Can you imagine how terrified, how terrified his opponents must have been? Brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to look at our lives, to face persecution, to face opposition, to face hardship, and to believe that we are under the oppression of God, to believe that we are having, uh, being forsaken by God. But what we have to realize is that as we go against the gates of hell, hell is going to fight back, it's going to see to tear you apart, and to tear your family apart. But hell is doing all of those things and bringing opposition against you and your marriage and your family because hell is afraid of you. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't have to live our lives afraid of hell. Hell is afraid of us. Hell is afraid of what we can do under the control of the Holy Spirit. Hell fears how we can press on with a courage that is greater than our own. Hell fears what can happen when there's a, a group of people united together by a spirit greater than the human spirit, greater than resolve by the power of God himself to go out into the midst of a community to do works that we have no ability to do, to accomplish things that we have no ability to accomplish from a strength that is greater than our strength, to speak with a power that is greater than our own authority, to do what we otherwise would be too timid and cowardly to do, to live availed to the spirit of God. So brothers and sisters, don't back down. Don't back down. Chris, Jonathan, as you serve the Lord, as he seeks to, to rob you of your passion and rob you of your, of your desire to serve, don't back down. As you seek to lead your family and you want to honor God with your family and you want to honor God with your marriage and you want to honor God in your high school, the most the easiest thing in the world for you to do will be to back down and to quit because it brings hardship into your life and it doesn't allow you to prosper in all of the ways that the world says that you can prosper. But don't back down. Lean in. Lean in to the Spirit of God. Lean in to the mission of God. Lean in to the power of God. Lean in to the promises of God. Lean in to the Lord and live by a strength and live by a courage and live by a dignity and live with a calling that is far greater than the conveniences of this world. Oh, brothers and sisters, be full of God and lean into God as the opposition comes against you. 
Chris and Jonathan, I can promise you that if you are as serious about this ministry as I think you are, you are going to face the greatest spiritual opposition in your life. That you're gonna face hardship in your family. You're gonna face hardship in your job. You may face hardship in your health. That if you're serious about serving Christ and his church, the enemy is going to try to make you quit. Don't quit. Don't back down. Lean in. Lean into the Spirit of God. Lean into the church of God. Lean in and press on. Stephen begins to give a speech. They bring him before the whole Sanhedrin. And bring him before the whole Sanhedrin. They, they ask him, Stephen, are these charges true against you? And Stephen, on trial, on trial, decides that this is a good opportunity for him instead to put the Sanhedrin on trial. Now imagine that. Congress calls you before them. They hold in their power the ability to kill you, to, you know, like make you go disappear on an island that nobody's ever heard of, like live in exile, live in prison. And, they, they, and you've got to ask them, answer some pretty hard but basic questions. And they come to you and they say, hey, hey, Cody, Jonathan, Chris, are, are you guilty of this? And you say, I'll tell you what, I think I'd rather put you on trial instead. And so, so Stephen begins to walk them through the old law as though they don't know the law. Walk them through the story of the old covenant as though they don't know the old covenant. And he says to them, your fathers struck down the prophets of God and you stiff-necked people are doing the same thing to me. You struck down the Son of God and now you are striking down the servants of God. They close their ears, not wanting to hear the blasphemy anymore. And they, they grind their teeth and they are incensed and enraged. And in the midst of this rage, they come upon Stephen. But Stephen looks up to the heavens, through the floor of heaven, and he's given a vision. He looks there and Jesus is exactly where he said he would be. He is at the right hand of the Father. Except, unlike anywhere else in all of the scriptures, New Covenant, New Testament, or Old Testament, he looks and Jesus isn't seated at the right hand of the Father. He is standing at the right hand of the Father. See, Daniel told us, Daniel told us in chapter 7, you'll notice that Stephen calls him the Son of Man. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And it brings into our mind what happened in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is given a vision of the future in which the Son of Man, the Son of Man will sit beside the Ancient of Days, at the right hand of the Ancient of, the day, of Days, and all peoples and all nations will be brought before Him as the great ruler of the nations and the judge of the nations. So we have here, in this moment of crisis, in this moment in which the alleged people of God are standing against the obvious and apparent man of God, and here is the Son of Man standing. He's standing as the judge. He is standing as the ruler of all peoples and all nations. And he is standing in, in honor and in encouragement of Stephen and at the very same time in condemnation of his own people. See, he was telling Stephen what was to come. Stephen wasn't going to ascend to a throne he was going to fall to a cross. Stephen was going to join Jesus on his cross. And for all of us that are students of Scripture, 
we catch a glimpse of the difference in the old covenant and the new. In the old covenant, all of our heroes are told, honor the Lord, love the Lord, obey the Lord, and it will go well with you. We're accustomed to seeing when opposition comes against them, that the Lord shows up and miraculously delivers them. So, so Daniel, he sleeps with a lion, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They walk out of a fiery furnace unsinged. David stands before the great giant and he slays him. He runs after the, the king of Israel and God takes down the false king. But then we come into the new covenant. We come into the new covenant. We get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We get into Acts. We get into the epistles. And what do we see? We see the heroes of God are not being delivered by God. They're being delivered over to God. That we follow after Christ that Christ is the standard and Christ is the expectation of the new covenant. And in the new covenant, what happens to Christ is that Christ lays down his life on a cross, not for a prosperous presence, but for a delayed glory. For a delayed glory. And so his followers, they're following him not to a throne, but to a cross. That the new covenant is not about the ascension to a throne. The new covenant is about the washing of feet. It's about service and sacrifice. It's about delaying prosperity now for a glory that is perfect and a glory that will not end and a glory that is everlasting. It is about delaying what is easy now and what is good now for that which cannot rot and will not rust. It's about finishing last now and knowing that with the certainty of Christ's promises, you will finish first forever in the kingdom of God. And so he stands, the slain Christ, the Christ that went to the cross so the resurrection might be true. The Christ that went to the cross so that one day there might be a new heaven and a new earth. The Christ that went to the cross so that one day you might cry your last tears. And he's saying, standing before Stephen, saying, endure the stones, Stephen. Endure the stones, Stephen. Wash the feet of those who slay you. And Stephen, in that moment, begins to identify himself with the cross of Jesus. And he says what Jesus says into, the, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He prays what Jesus prays. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I am walking the road of Calvary. I am walking the road of foot washing and sacrifice. That is, I am walking the road of a deacon. I'm aiming to finish last here so that I might experience the glory that Christ has promised. Stephen's life was a life of delayed glory. A life of delayed glory. His life was a life of delayed prosperity. His life was a life of delayed leisure. His life was a life of delayed convenience. His life was a life devoted and devout and aimed at, de at delayed glory that he might wash the feet of those who aim to slay him so that he can point them to the Son of Man. Chris and Jonathan, our deacons set the pace in delayed glory. Our deacons set the pace in that. 
that, that you are those within our church that calls the rest of our church by your own life, by your own action, to forsaking what is comfortable, to forsaking what is convenient, to serve and wash feet now with an eye to the promises of Christ. What can one man do? What good in light of so much need can one man actually accomplish? See, bubbling beneath the surface in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 is a church that was getting too comfortable. It was a church that was, was becoming too accustomed to being served and a church that was intended to go to the nations that was staying and residing right there in Jerusalem. But when the first martyr goes down, when the deacon is slain, when Stephen lays down his life, read in Acts chapter 8 verse 2 what it says. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Do you remember what the mission of Christ is? What the mission that Christ gave to his disciples upon his ascension? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were staying in Jerusalem but the martyrdom and the opposition that Stephen faced, Stephen's obedience and Stephen's faithfulness propelled the church to be scattered among the nations, to be scattered about the region that the name of Christ might be spread and the Lord God used one faithful deacon, one faithful man of God who simply did what was before him to do to catalyze the missions enterprise that is going on right now. William Carey began right here. David Brainerd began right here. Uh, 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 we see all of the Lottie Moon right here. Annie Armstrong right here. You right here. What can you do? What can you do? What you've been called to do. There's so much need that it's paralyzing. You meet the need that is in front of you. And the Lord may very well use you to catalyze hundreds, thousands of people over generations to spread His name. Let me pray for us.